and welcome to the Adaptation Station podcast. This is your host, Nicole. I'm a former special education teacher and currently an ABA therapist at a private center. This podcast is filled with tips and tricks for not only being the best special education teacher you can be in the classroom, but living the best life you can live outside of the classroom as well. After all, I'm all about balance. Hope you guys are excited. Let's jump on in. Hi, and welcome back to the Adaptation Station podcast. Today's episode is a continuation of our teaching during the pandemic podcast series. Today's episode is about distance teaching. I want to let you know I had so much quality information that I'm actually going to split this into two separate podcasts. So today is part one, and we have seven co-hosts who are going to answer some of your questions. I'll let them introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Nikki from Teaching Autism. I'm currently split in two classrooms. So I work providing in-home services for autistic students who are three to seven, and that's all online this year. And I also work as part of a behavior support team in a behavior unit for autistic students between three and 18. Hi, I'm Kim from Little Miss Kim's class. I teach in a third to fifth grade classroom for students with mixed needs. Hi, my name is Jen and I am from the handle Teach Love Autism. I teach grades fifth through ninth grade and the type of classroom that I support is an autistic support classroom in a virtual cyber school setting. Hi, I'm Erin from You Ought to Know. I teach kindergarten through second graders with autism. Hi, I'm Brianna Shoulders. My Instagram handle is SpedTeacherBree, and I teach in a K through two MOID classroom. Hi, I'm Heather from Full Sped Ahead. I am currently teaching virtual academy in Illinois. Um, to self-contained life skills classrooms. Hi, I am Fiona from SPED Adulting. Um, The classroom that I teach is adult transition and I would describe my students as mod severe. And um, also in case you don't know what adult transition is, that's 18 to 22 years old. Even if you are a veteran teacher, you might be finding that you need to find new ways to use your paraprofessionals in a distance setting. Heather, Kim, and Nikki are all going to share how they're using their paraprofessionals during distance learning. So I've been using my paraprofessional to help to help with classroom management um, and to help me pick students because when I am presenting as a virtual teacher, it is so difficult for me to see the kids and I'm trying to figure out how to see the kids and also present uh, an activity or a lesson. So he's been really helping me choose students to pick on and answer questions for me. Um, I'm also just setting up one-on-one virtual sessions where he will help track IEP goals for me. So I will give him the IEP goals and the activity to do with each student, and we will work together to make sure that IEP goals are truly tracked in the virtual setting.
The paraprofessionals I work with have done a variety of things during online learning, and we have finally narrowed it down to a few tasks that are really helpful to myself and also beneficial to students. The pairs I work with have been recording a variety of instructional videos. So they're recording read-alouds, but they're also recording themselves modeling how to do reading and math centers, which has been really, really helpful. They're also leading small groups. So when I'm running small groups for reading, math, and science, they're also running small groups. Something else that has just been great for students is the paraprofessionals I work with do one-on-one -on -one check ins with every student in the afternoon, and this has just been a great connection time. So it's been a little bit difficult, especially at the beginning, but what I found was to just stop overthinking it. And I just sort of thought back to the way that I use them in the classroom anyway, and ways that I could transition that online. So I have always had my paraprofessionals have an area of responsibility. I just find it works really well for the team as well. And everyone feels like they're contributing something to the classroom. So I very much kept that going. So they had their areas of responsibility, they carry that on. They did it in online Zoom lessons, but also I use them during my session. So we all know data is like our worst enemy and we're trying to take it all the time. And I quickly figured out when I'm providing Zoom lessons, there's no way I'm taking data at the exact same time. It's impossible. So I just have my paraprofessionals. They would take down any data. They'd make any comments, little things that maybe I would notice, like maybe one student really just didn't enjoy that type of session. Maybe another one was, you know, maybe overexcited and it's the kind of wrong route to go with them. So they were great for taking data, but honestly, some of the best things we did were video challenges and Literally, my kids love the video challenges. I put paraprofessionals in charge of that. And every week we film a video challenge, one of us, and then my paraprofessionals upload it to Google Classroom. And my kids have to do that video challenge and upload it back. So it's very much set on skills and targets that I want the children to work on. And then I just say to my paraprofessionals, you know, I trust you, go crazy. Something that is going to engage them, be fun, work on those skills. So I think it was just getting over that barrier of overthinking. I think so many of us were thrown into this position. And, you know, I was freaking out. I think everyone was freaking out together. And when I just took a step back and thought, you know, it's pretty much the same. It's just online, figuring it out. And I took a step back and that made it so much easier for me. And I wasn't so stressed. If you're struggling to figure out how you can train and support your paraprofessionals when you're not in the same room as them, Kim has some tips that might help. In terms of training paraprofessionals I work with, we've had to be a little more creative because normally in the classroom, we can just train paras on the job in the classroom as we're doing things. And that's not really an option right now. Something I've done is I've recorded myself leading and teaching small groups and then showed those recordings to the paraprofessionals. I've also had days the first few weeks of school that I moved the schedule around so that instead of paras leading a group, they could sit in on the group I was leading to just kind of see how I do it.
If you have students who are utilizing errorless learning and you're not sure how to apply that to a virtual classroom, Heather and Jen are going to share tips on how they're making it work. So there are two things that I've been using for my students that are working on errorless work. Um, I've been using interactive PDFs that are errorless, um, that are self-correcting as well, um, as well as boom cards. I know they're very similar, um, but errorless work can both be tracked there. Um, if with boom cards, you can track data on there as well, if you would like. Otherwise, you can just use it as a fast play. Um, the other thing that I've been using is another website called Help Kids Learn. It's kids with a Z. Um, there's a lot of cause and effect interactive games on there where students are learning how to click or manipulate um, certain things just to kind of play a game and it's more fun for them. So that's another website I'm using. When I'm working in a virtual classroom, it can be tricky to figure out how to use errorless learning techniques. However, I have been able to find ways that have been able to meet the needs of my students with errorless learning needs. One of those ways is by giving the students, if they are verbally able to give an answer, the answer first. So I will verbally say the answer and then ask them to repeat it or use an echoic to repeat exactly what I said, which is providing that model, but also giving them a chance to answer errorlessly. The other way I've done errorless learning is by providing materials that can be there with the student and whoever is working with them, whether it's an instructional aide, a paraprofessional, or some kind of related service provider, they can then provide the option to the student and only the right option, such as if we were doing letters of the alphabet, they may only provide the exact card with the right letter on it in a physical material, and then the student can pick it up and hold it up to the screen. A lot of the times when our students are first learning how to use AAC devices, they require physical prompting and modeling to utilize them. This is impossible to do in a distance classroom, but that doesn't mean that you can't use AAC devices in that virtual setting. Heather, Jen, and Fiona are all going to talk about how they're jumping this hurdle and still helping their students use AAC devices even when they're in a distance setting. So I have my own communication device um, on an iPad at my house. So I have a lot of their systems. I don't have everybody's system, um, but I will model on my end so that they can see where things are. Um, and then I also have a core word board um, that is manipulative and they can see that behind me when I'm teaching and I might pull a word or two off and have them find it on their device. Um, I know I can't help them find it on their end, but if they can see me modeling it, um, hopefully that repetition will help find that, have them find their own words um, along the way. Awesome, and I imagine that also gives your parents a little bit of training as well, if they're able to see you do that. Yes, it's super helpful. Um, a lot of parents have given feedback that they appreciate that they can see it on my end so they know where it goes and I can do a quick look under this word and find that um, phrase or word that we're looking for.
in a virtual setting, I'm supporting students with AAC devices in a few different ways. One of those ways is by asking the students to communicate just as I would their peers, using their devices, telling me answers to questions, and making sure that they are unmuted so everyone can hear them, to give them that opportunity to use their voice. Another way that I'm doing this is by screenshotting their screen or having a picture of the display that they use on their device it with me so that I can hold it up to the screen and model some of the ways I might respond to give that student the opportunity to see that in action. So if I want them to tell me something like read a book, I would then point to those words read and book. This has been a great way to help students with AAC devices be able to still do it in the classroom, even if I'm not physically there with them. So I think it's important to establish um, some expectations with the parents that you know they're gonna somebody's gonna be there to help them use their AAC device if they're not independent with your AAC device. Um, for a lot of my students, that's how it is. That they need a lot of hand over hand or prompting to use the correct buttons. Uh, while and a lot of them have IEP goals to find the correct buttons to utilize their AAC devices correctly. And so a lot of my lessons, I do try and provide as many visuals and multiple choice answers as I can, but, you know, it's not a perfect world, so you can't have every single lesson that has it perfectly visual and adapted that way. So what I try and do is I try and utilize, um, you know, I, I try to get to know what's in each one of my students' devices. Um, each one has a different set of words that they focus on, but for the most part, they all use the same program and they all have the similar pages and similar words on most of the pages. So, you know, those are all the basic like core words and just basic descriptions. And so I try to utilize those as answer choices in a lot of my lessons. And so if I don't have a visual to put up, you know, I'll ask them simple yes and no questions. That's on every single person's AAC device. Um, I'll try and utilize numbers, uh, days of the week, and so on. Colors, you know, the simple stuff that's on every single person's device. And then if there are additional things that I know that not everyone has, but I know specific students have, I'll try and utilize those as answer choices as well. And you know, this is also just a great option if a student doesn't have an AAC device that these are simple ways for them to participate by additionally asking them, you know, something that they can nod their head to, um, something they can give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to. Um, and then on top of that, if they don't have anything that they can utilize, you know, I'll ask the parent to help them out and they can touch the screen of what I'm sharing, um, something that you know that the parent has to help tell me hey they're they're choosing this option but they're still answering as independently as they can a lot of our students require hands-on access to their materials in order to facilitate learning that might be really challenging if they're not in your classroom heather Bree, Aaron, Jen, and Nikki all have tips on how they're making that distance learning classroom 
hands-on, and engaging for their students. So something that I've done, and I know this isn't possible for everyone, um, is I was able to go into my building and print off materials and make hands-on activities. So I sent home to my families work tasks, adapted binders, file folders, um, a lot of Velcro um, pick up, put on tasks so that parents can do that at home with their child. Um, as well as they attend virtual sessions with me more live, but we all know that they need those hands-on interactive activities. So I'm gonna to try to switch those out probably every couple weeks um, and I will arrange a time to come pick up the old materials and bring them new materials. Okay, this is my favorite because we use the Zoom platform. I'm not really sure how Google Meets works for anybody who's listening to this podcast, but on Zoom, definitely the most hands-on activity that I do is um, like touch math. Well, my pair, she covers touch math, so she has her own set of manipulatives and she, hold, she holds up her like touch math numbers and the students, I sent home their own touch math numbers and manipulatives. And then writing is fun because when you share your screen, there's a whiteboard option where you can write on your screen, and my laptop is touchscreen. If you have a mouse, you can do it that way too. You just have to like figure out how to like make your curves and you know, dot your eyes and all that stuff. But since I have a touchscreen, I can easily spell my student's name and say, hey, can you grab your whiteboard and marker? Um, either I sent that home to students or parents just went ahead and purchased that on their own. And my students and I are able to do like math with writing or name writing or, um, doing blends. I've sent home letters for my students who are doing CBC blends. So yes, um, it's very fun to see them like work on that. Also, same thing, um, sharing my screen and having them point or touch. Um, I did find out a new cool tip. It's called remote control where you can give your students control of your mouse and your laptop, but it doesn't work for Chromebooks. So I haven't been able to use it for my students, but for my paras, it's very useful. Like if I need to run out the room, and we're doing like a shared activity, I can give them remote control and then they can control my screen while I'm out and then I can come back. That's been a little bit of a struggle. It's been harder. Um, I am working on sending home like mats of sight words and mats of choices so that students are able to at least point to the choices that they want to make. Um, we've sent home manipulatives so students for math can um, use those, but that's definitely been more of a struggle for us. And it's something that I keep working on. I'm learning how to do like the remote features so that my students can complete things through their device that they're using. So a lot of my students are logging in on iPads. And if I'm able to give them the remote controls, then we can do activities like boom cards or Google slide activities where students can move things around. So that's our next adventure. When I'm working with students in a virtual learning environment, it can be tricky to figure out how to keep it hands on. Some of the ways that I have done that is through the use of Zoom. So when I'm running a virtual class in a Zoom meeting, I am giving students the opportunity to interact in many ways. Some of those ways include utilizing the tools that Zoom offers, such as the annotate tool, which allows students to draw, circle, stamp, and color on answers that they may see on the screen. 
I also will allow students to utilize the screen control where I give control to a student and they can then use my mouse to select something on the screen. This works great for boom cards, websites, and other activities such as uh, Google Slides activities where students can drag and drop, select, and move items to make an answer. We have been mixing it up a lot. So we use Zoom. I use Zoom from the beginning. I just find it such an easy platform to use. I didn't want to stress about learning a new platform. So I figured what I know is the best way to go. So we done Zoom lessons and then we make them really interactive. So we dress up, we have props, we take things to the next level. And again, we just incorporated things that I know work in the classroom and try to bring those to the online learning as well, because I didn't want to switch things up so much that my kids had absolutely no idea what lesson I was teaching this week and why is she doing that when we've never done that before. So the only new thing that we kind of introduced were boom cards, but I converted a lot of the resources we use in the classroom to boom cards. So I was still continuing a little bit of that normality for them and that consistency. And then I started to branch out to different boom cards, you know, making them different levels, different styles and things. So they worked really well for us, but it's just all about making fun. And, you know, we do a lot of live streaming classes with them. We found this worked really well. So we do cooking class every week and then um, my kids' families all bought chef hats and aprons and we, and we all do cooking together once a week. And I think people really underestimate how many skills you can learn in just a really basic cooking session. And you know, you can incorporate so many things, even like we did really simple one week cheese on toast, which sounds so simple and easy but it was things like you know use a shape cutter and cut the cheese into a different shape what shape have you got can you make a small one can you make a big one can you cut it into two and the parents were like blown away they were like i had no idea cheese on toast could be educational <laughs> and so all of a sudden you know everyone got really engaged into those but I think the best thing for us is probably story time. So my kids have always loved story time. We make them very um, sensory friendly. So we have props in the classroom. I do miss being in the classroom because we have smell boxes and feely boxes. And obviously I cannot do that through the screen, no matter how hard I try, there's just no way. But I have sent home scripts and things for families so they can try and do them if they really want to. But there's just something about you know, reading a story to them online and they're all engaged with it. I'll often send home crafts and stuff leading up to it. So if we read, you know, a book about a birthday party, we'll all make a birthday party hat together. If we read about dinosaurs, everyone can fetch, you know, a toy to the Zoom lesson. And if they've got dinosaurs, great, we can talk about their dinosaurs. I think it's just about kind of connecting with what they've got at home without being too over pushy into the house as well because it can be quite overwhelming for our kids when all of a sudden we've gone from being in school to showing up in their living room and their bedroom and their kitchen and everywhere else. If you are finding out that your students don't have endurance in your class and you're only able to participate for five minutes right now, you are so not alone. I wanna make sure you know that. It's important that we work on building endurance, but if you're not sure where to start, 
Aaron and Nikki are going to share some of the tips that they've been doing to help their students build the stamina they need for virtual classes. How are you helping your students build endurance to be able to participate in a virtual classroom for longer than two minutes? <laughs> that has definitely been a struggle. Our first week, our morning meeting was about 10 minutes of, hi, good morning, let's sing a song and we're out of here. And we've already gotten to the point where my students can attend for about 15 to 20 minutes. We've only been in school for about three weeks. So I'm pretty impressed that they're able to attend. Um, some of my students with less verbal abilities are starting to communicate more with the use of text or um, pods where they can point to pictures. So that's really exciting. I've seen some great imitation when we are singing songs, so that's super fun. But I just started small. I said, let's start with basic, easy, five, 10 minutes, let's engage, and then we're out of here and try it again tomorrow for a little bit longer and build that endurance. But next week, I'm gonna try something new since I've learned breakout rooms. I'm going to try doing a whole group meeting and then we break off into small group lessons for about 10 or 15 minutes and then come back and do a movement break together as a group and then kind of shuffle those groups like we would in a normal classroom. So I'm excited to try that and I think that'll help providing those breaks within our centers, quote unquote. Um, just incorporate a lot of movement and breaks. I quickly learned that we need a lot more movement breaks and brain breaks when we're online and sat behind a computer compared to in the classroom. So I will often work from a PowerPoint slideshow and I incorporate the movement breaks in there and I try and mix them up as well because I don't want my kids to get bored, especially now when we've got online learning for the entire year ahead. So I'll put in, you know, a couple of yoga moves. We also do workouts together and that's quite funny. And once a week we all turn up in our workout gear <laughs> and we have a little workout together we also go on scavenger hunt so I'll just say like you know run to the kitchen and find me something to eat not drink don't choose drink because I've seen a few horror stories online of what kids have brought that their parents are drinking through lockdown and it didn't end well so things that you know they can eat and things I'll say fetch me something from the bathroom I've even done things like run outside and pick me five blades of grass and it's just to give them five minutes to run outside, get some grass, come back in, just to get them moving. But that has probably been the best thing that I've done. It's also kept them active in the house to wear them out because so many parents were saying, as soon as like lockdown happened, their children were quite happy to sit on the sofa all day on their iPad and watching TV. They didn't want to exercise. So that's where the video challenges come in again. And we've done things like, you know, how many times can you jump in 20 seconds, video it and film it back to me? How many star jumps can you do? Can you make an obstacle course? Just little things to keep them active because I think we all know it's horrible sitting behind a computer desk all day, especially every day. So moment has probably been a huge part of why it's been so successful for us. And it's why we decided to just continue for this entire year rather than transition back to the classroom. So I'm quite happy because that means I've done something right. <laughs> if they're all agreeing that they want to carry on, but it's just easier as well because I can plan for the entire year ahead now. I hope you heard something in this podcast that will help you as you continue to push forward during distance teaching. If you haven't been listening to the pandemic series, 
Episode 55 was all about teaching in the classroom, but episode 56 was hybrid teaching, so there are definitely some tips in there that you can apply to your distance classroom. And like I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, I had so much information about distance learning that episode 58 will come out on Wednesday with part two with even more tips. So be sure to check back in. And in the meantime, know that you're doing the absolute best that you can, and we are all here to support you in any way. I can't wait to share part two with you guys, but until then, do something for yourself because you deserve it. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard, I would greatly appreciate if you left me some feedback. And if you want to hear more, go ahead and give me a follow. While you're at it, come say hi on social media. You can find me at Adaptation Station on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and AdaptationStation.net. It's taco night in my house, so I'm going to go have a delicious dinner and a margarita, and I will talk to you guys again next Friday.